Okay, so we're going to take a look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 10 tonight. And if you remember what I mentioned last week, the section that has related material uh, kind of crosses over between the two chapters. So between chapter th uh, 3, verse 13 through 4, 10, it's kind of a related section. Uh, there's an unfortunate chapter break in between. But what we saw last week was more kind of the theology of the two different types of wisdom and uh, one that actually benefits people, helps people and others that produces bitter envy and selfish ambition, which was in chapter three, verse 14. James uh, continues that uh, thought and in chapter four, he begins to apply it, and as he applies it, he gets in the face of the reader. This is a pretty straightforward section here, and what we find taking place is even in the early church, uh, among the first followers of Christ, there was this, uh, this battle for power. There was divisions and different things that were going on, human nature. Uh, is the same across the centuries. And so what he's going to do here is talk a little bit about what causes the fight and quarrels among us. So this is applicable not only to church life, I think it's also applicable within our family and other circles as well. And so he will get very demonstrative in this section and as he does so, he'll use some different imagery. He'll uh, use kind of metaphors that um, are going to cause us to kind of sit up and take notice. And as he does so, I don't think he means this literally, but he, he exaggerates this so that we would get the point. So that'll come into play here as we look at it. So let's read verses one through three, and that's the first paragraph in this section in chapter four. And I've um, titled this, Evidence That the Readers Are Not Experiencing Peace from God. So at the end of chapter three, you'll remember in verse 18, he says, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. So he has peacemaking in mind, and as he does so, he is going to show us kind of what gets in the way of peacemaking and peacekeeping. So in this section, I think it's important first to observe that this is kind of a communal emphasis here. This isn't just kind of individual. It's more of community and how it relates to each other. And so with that in mind, uh, let's read verses one through three, and you're going to see some of the shocking language that he uses here in verses one through three. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend that, uh, spend what you get on your pleasures. So right in the middle there, notice where he says you quarrel and fight. And okay, that's something that we can relate to. But right above that, he says you kill and covet. And that's what I mean by the exaggerated language here. I don't think there's actual murder going on here. It's kind of the idea of killing the spirit of peacemaking. It's the idea of this division causing such consternation between people that they can't get along. So one of the things that James may have in mind here is an allusion to angry speech uh, back in the Sermon on the Mount. We'll turn there in a moment, but you'll notice here in this shocking language uh, one of the things that he is doing is um, just bringing the poignant application of what he has talked about before. And um, if this was actual murder that was going on here, 
uh, James wouldn't just mention it in one verse and move on. It, there would be a lot more attention given to this. So when he says you kill in covenant because you cannot have what you want, it's talking about this struggle within the community. So it's a struggle for power. It's a struggle for control. It's a, uh, it's a struggle for who's going to get the better um, things, whatever those things may be. So I'm going to turn over to chapter five of Matthew for a second. And in the Sermon on the Mount, listen to the words of Jesus. He says here in verse 21, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And anyone who says to his brother Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin, that anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. So even Jesus is using a lot of provoke, provocative language, but he takes it beyond the physical act of murder. And he talks about how we can kill the spirit of other people by our language, our anger, and the misuse of our tongue, which we've already talked about in the book. Um, the tongue is something that can set something on fire, figuratively speaking. So more than likely what James is talking about here is the type of angry type of language that people use against each other. And it's like he said in chapter three, it's like a deadly poison. It's something that can ruin relationship and it can ruin entire churches and communities if this type of angry speech uh, continues. So, you know, I'm sure all of us know of people within our family circle or friendship circle that just don't know how to bite their tongue, that there are individuals that allow their tongue to get out of control and they cause misunderstanding, they cause hurt feelings, that type of thing. So um, one of the things that uh, James is going to show us here is the speech is a symptom of something else. And here's where he talks about motives. He talks about desire. He talks about um, wanting to use other people for uh, our own pleasure, that type of thing. So the first thing he says is, this isn't peacekeeping. You know, so he, he ended chapter three with that. But what he's doing is he's making a connection to something that came before. So if you're in James, go back to chapter one and let's remind ourselves for a second. Verses five through eight. Here he says, um, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So notice that phrase there, double-minded. In there, there's this idea of within the spirit of who we are, there's this fight between um, the good and the not so good. And what we find is a lot of this is linked back to um, how we will trust God. And, you know, doubting the goodness of God uh, then leads us to a point where we think we need to fend for ourselves. And when we do that, then we don't see other people as part of our community but we see other people as a, um, as a means to an end to get what we want. And so I think there's a connection here when we think a little bit about what our motives are. So he's already said, hey, give, ask of God and he will give you wisdom. He'll give you what you need. But here in chapter four, he says, well, you ask God, take a look at verse two, you do not have because you do not ask God. But when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. 
You see the connection there. There's an element of faith, and I don't mean faith by mean uh, by uh, by mental cons consent. What I'm talking about is being committed to understanding the goodness of God, trusting the goodness of God, and then asking God out of that commitment and love that we have for him to give us the wisdom to know how to, uh, to navigate life. And wherever we go in life, unless you're on a, a, des a deserted island somewhere, you, you've got to know how to navigate relationships. And so he talks about this and he then tells us to, um, you know, trust God, believe in the goodness of God, uh, really anticipate that God will meet your needs and don't try to use other people as a way of getting those things that you want, because in the end, you hurt other people and uh, you hurt yourself as well. So some thoughts on verses one through three there, any, any insights or questions? So in verses four through six, there's another introduction. So in 1 John, 1 John talks about the world, the flesh, and the devil. And you're going to see those very same three things in this section in James. So we've already talked about your desires. We might call that the flesh, okay? Um, then he talks about the world in verses four through six. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So he's still using very provocative language. Or do you think uh, scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? but he gives us more grace. And that's why the scripture says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So let's uh, dissect this a little bit. So he then introduces the idea of the world and it's not the planet we live on. When he talks about the world here, he's not talking about planet earth. He's talking about the systems in the world and how the systems work. And many times these systems um, are in opposition toward God. In fact, more than opposition. You see in verse four, he says that friendship with the world is hatred toward God. So in various systems, and it looks different around the world, depending on what the culture is like, there's these things that are going on of what we value. So do we value relationships? Or do we value money and fame and success, recognition and power and so forth more than relationships? And if that's the case, if we value those things more, that's the world in operation that then becomes an enemy of God in the sense of the kingdom of God um, is, is built upon love and acceptance and grace, whereas the world is built upon using and abusing things to get what we want. And that then causes these problems that he was just talking about, uh, selfish ambitions and so on and so forth. So he then talks a little bit about resisting this world system that wants to push us into the corner that insists that you're not successful unless you're always getting everything that you want. So take a look at, at your uh, notes there. It says, James uh, conforms uh, to teaching found in other Jewish texts that the human nature has two competing spirits. One is inclined toward evil, the other's toward good. So each day, I guess, we engage one or the other, uh, or both, uh, depending upon how the day goes. And um, he then talks a little bit about slowing down enough to humble ourselves before God so that God can give us grace in the midst of this battle. And he, he says, God opposes the problem, but gives grace to the humble. And if you have a, um, if you have a 
cross-reference Bible, you'll notice that it puts Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34 there as the cross-reference. It's an allusion to Proverbs 3.34. It's not really a quotation, even though in your Bible it puts quotation marks around it. So if you were to go to Proverbs 3.34, you'll see that the same idea is there, but he's not actually quoting it, even though he says, uh, that's why scripture says. So he's using the scripture to apply it to his particular situation. I'll read Proverbs 3.34 so you see what I'm saying here. So the New Testament writers a lot of times do not quote um, the scriptures verbatim, but a lot of times they give allusion to the main idea or central idea that is found in the Old Testament. So in chapter three, verse 34 of Proverbs, it says, he mocks proud mockers, but gives grace to the humble. So the writer of Proverbs talks about God mocking the mockers, but giving grace to the humble, where here he says, God opposes the proud, but but gives grace to the humble. So the opposition uh, that he's in, uh, that he is building upon is quite interesting in Proverbs 334. Uh, people that mock and use language uh, that tear people down, it says that God mocks those who mock, which is <laughs> which is an interesting turn of phrase, isn't it? So anyways, I just wanted to show you that this is an example of A lot of times New Testament writers will get the big idea from the Old Testament, but they're not necessarily quoting it verbatim. So it, it, you know, it works to their purpose for what they're trying to accomplish. So uh, this section here um, is really summarized like this. Proud people exalt themselves to a level that belongs only to God. And by doing so, God becomes their enemy. That is... um, God, you know, uh, will push back on that because that's not the type of world system that he's in approval of. So God's response is to fight, to move those people back to their proper position. And and if they will then submit themselves, which is the next verse, uh, what they'll find is that God will continue to come near to them. And, um, and so, Here we see the desires, i.e. the flesh and the world. And then in verse seven, what we're going to see is the devil is that triumphant uh, uh, conclusion of this paragraph that's using all three of those things that uh, that were mentioned over in 1 John, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But any, any thoughts on verses four through six that you have? So now he will talk about submitting to God. In verses 7 through 10, he says this, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That goes back to chapter 1 again, where we saw the double-minded man. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So in this section here, um, he begins to talk about something that is a complex topic in the scripture. And the remainder of our time tonight, I want to tease that out a little bit. So when we think about the devil, we usually think about the devil in terms of a personality, uh, an individual, if you will, named Satan. There is a variety of ways that the scripture talks about this idea of that which opposes God. It can be anything from idols uh, to the Hasatan that is found in the Old Testament, uh, the one who is the accuser. Here is the mention of the devil Um, And there is really a personification here, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So it's not necessarily a system at this point. It looks like it is a uh, personality 
that's behind a lot of this stuff. So one of the things that I want to tease out and uh, is a little bit about uh, a topic called spiritual warfare. So this particular paragraph here is often used in a lot of literature about spiritual warfare. But we, before we get into that, have you heard that term? And um, what was your teaching or background on what spiritual warfare is, if you have been exposed to that terminology? Anybody? Because if you go to Google and put in books on spiritual warfare, you will literally come up with hundreds of volumes. It was a hot topic for a while in, in Christian literature and stuff. Um, but I don't know if your church background, whether that was ever mentioned or not, but if it was, I, I want you to keep your eye open to see if which of these different viewpoints it was presented as. Okay, so that, that's what we're going to look at here in a second. Any thoughts on that? Okay. Brenda is talking a little bit about her growing up in the church. I'll try to relay what she says. Yeah. Okay. As in, as in a force, you mean? Okay. So let me summarize for Bud and Shelley here on online. So Brenda was saying that when she was growing up in church, the presentation of the devil was seen as an individual, a personality. But as she's gotten older, um, she began to think of it more in terms of a force rather than as an individual that, I guess, you know, um, affects uh, the world systems that we live in. Go ahead. Do you have some more? Okay, so let me re relay this to Bud and Shelley. So Brenda was saying that uh, the way she got involved with the Perry um, Food Pantry was she attended Perry Christian Church and uh, got involved out there. And she was out at the food pantry today, and an individual made a comment that the devil must really be at work in the community of Perry. And the, and the reason they said that was there was something that was going on in a number of the churches in Perry. Um, uh, a pa one of the pastors passed away. Another one um, had a stroke. And then another one had a, a child who uh, came down with COVID, right? And um, so 
this individual made a comment, well, the, the, the devil must really be active right now because it's affecting all of these churches within this uh, rural com community. Uh, so you're going to see in a moment, that's one way that people often look at spiritual warfare, that it is, um, it is something beyond individual temptation. So when I'm talking about individual temptation, think of Jesus in the wilderness type thing. Devil comes right. and tempts him. Uh, so that there's something bigger that's going on, that it affects the network of an entire community. So thanks, Brenda, because that's going to be one of the ways people look at spiritual warfare. I'm going to show you four different viewpoints that uh, that different people have on this idea of, of spiritual warfare and resisting the devil and that type of thing. So thank you. That was yeah, I think, I think, the, I think the, the personification, you know, that, that's... And in terms of spiritual warfare, obviously that's even though there's four different approaches out, that's one that probably, especially in the in the eighties and the nineties, there were there, a lot of those books. I presume are probably from that. That's correct. So that was that was big then. There was a lot, a lot of authors writing about that. I mean, you can, and you can go back to Screw Tape Letters from C.S. Lewis. Lewis, and yeah, even though that's somewhat satirical. So obviously, um, it still presents sort of a personification of mm -hmm. of the devil. Yeah. So, um, so but you're exactly right. A lot of that uh, idea of individual uh, personification of Satan really hit, hit its high water mark in the '70s, in the '80s, um, which is interesting uh, as well because. In the 70s and 80s, there was also an obsession with end times as well. So right. Paul, Hal Lindsey uh, and other authors that, uh, yeah, uh, David Jeremiah still, do, uh, you know, that's still one of his hobby horses. But um, so there's this connection, I think, between uh, this personification of Satan and a new world order and um you know the whole end time scenario that type of thing that are was often presented in the 70s and 80s um i don't think i ever realized at the time because i was a young christian in the mid 70s uh that that was only one viewpoint you know so depending upon where you went to church you might have said well this is gospel rather than um, understanding that there's different scholars that have different approaches and different perspectives on it. But, um, you know, and a lot of that kind of depends too upon what the major influences are in the area in which you grew up. So in the greater Cleveland area, uh, obviously uh, WCRF and uh, radio station had a lot of influence in the 70s, early 80s. And all of that was uh, dispensational type teaching that emphasized end times. So, you know, thus this whole idea of spiritual warfare uh, would often be found in the people that they would have on their programming, David Jeremiah, John MacArthur, uh, individuals like that. So, um, you know, that's still there, but I think what we're seeing is there's more of a balance now than there was back in, in the 70s and 80s because it, this whole uh, obsession with eschatology really kind of ignored a lot of other things. So, well, it was also the, you know, there was the, the, the big, perhaps even the bigger part of this was angels. I mean, so, I mean, it wasn't just, it wasn't just Satan. I mean, it was a lot of, a lot of these books kind of played both sides. In other words, there was, yeah, there were there were the Satan, there were there was Satan and the the bad angels, and then there were the good angels, and mm -hmm. so I think there was a, at that period there was also a big, a large emphasis on on angelic beings and their activities and that sort of thing too. Right, that's exactly right. Yep, very true. Okay, so let's tease this out a little bit. Okay, so um, here we see. Um, 
you know, humble yourself and, and the Lord will lift you up. Now, spiritual warfare uh, is an interesting term because um, you will find sections in the New Testament that seem to be presenting kind of a direct confrontation. And I'm thinking especially of Ephesians chapter six, uh, verse, uh, uh, well, it's several verses um, that, that talks about the armor of God, put on the armor of God and that type of thing. So um, this idea of the believer's battle against Satan and the power of darkness is something that is found in other cross-references as well. Uh, what we find is it takes on a kind of a warfare, um, a warfare imagery. And with that comes warfare language. So I'll show you what I mean. Uh, let's go back to Ephesians 6 just for a second. So this is Paul's way of talking about this battle that we're in. So in Ephesians 6.10, he says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the power uh, and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms, therefore put on the full armor of God. Then he names those. Okay. He talks about the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, so on and so forth. But there's that imagery. It's the idea of warfare. Uh, you're going to battle um, and that type of thing. So just the very title spiritual warfare implies that you're a soldier type thing. And you've got to be able to stand your ground and put up the good fight. So um, when you come across this topic, it is not as simple as that. <laughs> so when you look at the entirety of the scripture, this whole idea is a pretty complex thing. So um, when we hear people talking about, you know, standing strong in the Lord and, and putting up the good fight and that type of thing, um, many times it sounds as though, how do I want to put this? Um, so I put it in your notes there. It almost sounds like you're a part of a holy war type thing. And, um, and so, you know, that whole imagery of violence kind of goes along with that as well. So notice at the bottom of the this slide, one of the key elements in Jesus' perception of his calling was a redefinition of who the real enemy was. So when Jesus comes and he begins to uh, talk about the kingdom of God being at hand, uh, that, those were intimidating words um, to those that were in power, specifically the Roman Empire. And so the Roman Empire was seen as the enemy against God's people. And Jesus would, would understand that many people that wanted to crown him as Messiah wanted him to lead a military revolution, to take up arms and to get rid of the enemy. What I think Jesus begins to do is to talk a little bit beyond the enemy that's in front of you, that is the Roman Empire and the Roman soldiers, and to understand that there is a force that is behind that. And so even though there's that personal side when Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, at the same time, he has the audacity to say to love your enemies to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile. Why would he say that? Well, because I think what he begins to reframe uh, is that your enemy is not that person, but it's that power that motivates that person or that system. And so with that type of language, um, there have been different authors that have formulated different perspectives on this whole nature 
of spiritual warfare. So now here's an interesting thing. Point number two on this slide. In the Book of Common Prayer, the Lord is asked to, in the Book of Common Prayer is filled with what it says, prayers that people use on a regular basis to pray uh, as part of their spiritual development. So one of the, uh, many of the prayers in the Book of Common Prayer is uh, asking the Lord to spare his people from the deceit of the world, the flesh, and the devil. There's that trinity, that unholy trinity again. And, um, and so what we find that is that became kind of the primary focal point of spiritual warfare. When we think about the world, the flesh, and the devil, it's not mutually exclusive, though. I think there's overlap between them in the sense that a world system can be motivated by the flesh and empowered by a supernatural darkness at the same time. So a lot of these things are intertwined together. But here's what I want you to think about. So there's a series of books that are out, um, and um, these books will take a variety of different topics and talk about the different viewpoints. This particular one in this series is called Understanding Spiritual Warfare, Four Different Views. And these four views are presented by uh, four authors. And then the other authors, the other three authors, then critique that guy's presentation. So it's an interesting read. So I'm going to show you what these four positions are. And when you look at this, you go, oh, see, if you read just one on their own, uh, so you can see here, uh, one of them is Walter Wink is the author. Another is Greg Boyd. If you just read their essay alone, you kind of go, well, I guess that's the way it is until you read the evaluation from the other guys that are, then they poke holes in that presentation. Um, and, and so by the time you get to the end of the book, you go, this is a complex topic and it's a topic that is not bulletproof. You know what I'm saying? It, there's, there's holes in each of these uh, positions. So let me just give them to you. If you've never heard of them, you might find this interesting. And it, it, the reason I'm doing it tonight is because of this right here. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil. He will flee from you. This is a primary central verse that's often used for spiritual warfare language. So each, each, um, each viewpoint has a primary author. So uh, the world systems model, uh, that essay is by Walter Wink, a theologian. And here's his, his take on spiritual warfare is he understands, like I just read out of Ephesians chapter six, that it's not it, the personification of one individual supernatural being, but it is everything uh, that relates to principalities and powers and dominions that form the worldly institutions and structures and systems that then causes the evil in the world. And that that's what you had just talked about, uh, Brenda, when you're saying, oh, I kind of began to look a little bit different from an individual to an, a system that uh, causes a lot of these things. So on the screen, you'll notice it says these World structures become oppressive, demonic systems of domination, and they become, um, you know, the source of evil so that the church, one of the responsibility of the church is to name and unmask and engage with these systems that are unjust. And, and so a key way of doing that, we talked a little bit about this on Sunday when I, I referenced uh, John Lewis is by nonviolence, but bringing it to the attention of, of people that uh, this is an unjust um, uh, system. And uh, so I guess this model would suggest that spiritual warfare is talking about society being possessed, if you will, by things like violence and sex and money and drugs and those type of things that brings about all these collective problems in, in our world. 
And I think there's something to say about that because Ephesians 6, I think that's what it, Paul has in mind. There's these systems that often cause a lot of problems. But if you read the book, then the other three authors will poke holes in that uh, position um, and say, no, that's not it only. There's, there's other ways of looking at this. Does this... Does, is this understandable, what I'm saying here, that it's an evil force that is, um, is uh, controlling, if, uh, for lack of a better term, or influencing uh, so many of the structures of society that cause so many difficulties? So is that suggesting there's a, there's a force like the dark side? <laughs> or is it suggesting that, that, it, that it's intrinsic to, man, to man's nature and, and man's evolution. No, I, you know, I, that is, is it suggesting something supernatural or is it suggesting this is entirely yeah, humanistic? Yeah, it is suggesting something supernatural, saying okay. that these systems are influenced by some power of darkness. And, and really the whole thing that you just mentioned, uh, you know, uh, the whole dark and light uh, and good side of the force is tried is played out in a lot of the, you know, the, the movies like that. That okay, are you which are you gonna, you gonna lean into the dark side or are you gonna lead into the the good side? But yes, it's supernatural. Uh, but Walter Wink would probably not say there's like one general Satan that is commanding this this entire supernatural force. I think he would suggest that there's, um, from wherever this system comes from, and that's up for debate too, is this a, a myriad of fallen angels or whatever? Um, he, he would suggest there's some uh, supernatural force that then affects the heart of man and man acts out this force that is seen in the world systems. Okay, is that any other questions on that? So another author would go, nope, 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 that's not true. So that, this guy, and I don't know a whole lot about this uh, author, David Pollison, um, but his is more of the classic model that talks about um, it, Satan is individually uh, tempting us, like um, Jesus in the wilderness type thing. So every time you have a bad thought, every time you are tempted to do something, um, it's Satan. And I've known a ton of Christians over the years um, that have this viewpoint that it's almost as if Satan is sitting on their shoulder. And, and throughout the course of the day, it's sort of like uh, the serpent whispering to Eve in our ear to, to do something wrong. So that's kind of the classic model. It's called uh, kind of the flesh model. It comes out of our own sinful nature. Um, and we're tempted uh, to misuse, um, uh, you know, everything that's available to us for our own selfish purposes. Um, in this particular model, um, I guess the weapons are not calling out the systems of injustice, but it's more personal. You personally repent, you personally accept the truth, you pray, um, you know, you worship, you study the Bible. Those are the keys that help gain you victory over the power of Satan's personal temptations. So this... This is the viewpoint, I think, that a lot of people have been presented many times in the Christian faith. And, um, and I don't think that Satan is omnipresent. I don't think uh, Satan is omniscient. And I don't think that he is omnipotent. So I don't think Satan is on all of our shoulders every day. That's just my take on it. You know, I have enough fallenness in my own to, to make stupid decisions, let alone 
a supernatural force <laughs> that's that's doing it. But this is a position that was held to, and it still is. Um, and I think, you know, the whole idea of renouncing the devil. So on the charismatic side of churches, um, you'll get a lot of um, deliverance language that comes into this viewpoint. You need to be delivered from the demon of whatever. Are, are you familiar with what I'm saying there? So, you know, you're trying to quit smoking. Let's say this is a safe illustration. You're trying to quit smoking. And, uh, and people in this would say, well, no, Satan's tempted you to pick up that next cigarette to light it up and that type of thing. And you need to renounce the spirit of tobacco or whatever, that type of thing. So you, you, you see how this gets a little bit cartoonish almost. Um, is, is the way I, I want to put it. It's kind of like, you know, the devil is in a spandex suit with a pitchfork type thing, it, you know. Yeah, yeah. So what Brenda said, is that sort of like Ernest Angeli? And I would say, yes, very much so, where you can be delivered from this and usually someone that has a gift of healing can deliver you from this type of thing. This is also true of, um, if you want to stretch it out to its, to its farthest degree, you, you could also say that this is something that, is, um, that influences the idea of exorcism, too. You, you know, that Satan possesses people and they need to be uh, delivered there. So questions, comments on that? Well, the media, you know, obviously plays a lot of that too. The, the, the yeah, the devil, the devil made me do it. Remember, and that, what, what was that, what, I can't remember his Geraldine. name. Yeah, Flip Wilson, Geraldine. And Flip Wilson, yeah. <laughs> and there were and there were all the the the, the, the uh, cartoons where they would have the devil on one on, yeah. on one shoulder and the, <laughs> and the angel on the other shoulder. Yeah, you know, with the person's face on both of them. Yeah. So it's uh. But you know, there, there's a lot of you know in the scriptures also that that like like evil spirits, like the uh, you know the the spirits that ran over the ran off the cliff and got everybody mad at them. You know, got yeah. so, uh, the, the pigs. So there are examples where that's it sounds very much like Satan possesses people, and mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's pretty it's pretty explicit in the in the, in, in the scriptures that particular passage in. In particular, you know, in particular, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, each of these positions has a lot of um, poignant passages that they could turn to. Um, right. And that's what, you know, that's what makes this difficult. And, it, and, and in the end, I might as well show my hand. Probably all four have valid points that they're making. Because I do think what you find in the scriptures in regard to this topic is, is pretty complex. So, well, let's go to the third one. So, I obviously haven't read the book. It, was, it was seen that, it was seen that uh, you know, in one sense, this topic, the example I just mentioned with the pigs running out with the, with the uh, well, whatever his name was. What was this guy's name? Legion. Legion. So with Legion being a you know human being with a spirit, uh, evil spirit, you know, had taken him over. Mm -hmm. How would they, how would these other authors who didn't who don't uh, you know go with that particular model? I would think uh, how would they explain that away? I mean, do they try to do anything like that? Do they try to come up with alternate explanations of what of what was meant by that passage? Which is again, is a pretty it's pretty clear you know yeah. passage. Well, here's a case in point. That's a great example that you brought up. So when you look at that particular passage, other authors would say um, in that the point of that passage is found in the terminology that is being used. Legion is what? It's a, it's a type of division within the Roman army. So a lot of these authors would say, look, look at um, 
look at the particulars of the passage. This, this guy's name is Legion. Um, the demons go into swine pigs. Um, systems such as um, when Antiochus Epiphanes uh, slaughtered a pig in the temple in the Old Testament. Um, it was called the abomination of desolation. So other authors would say there's more to it than this one guy being possessed. There's more imagery and figure, uh, there's figuratism that's there as well. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's how some of them would also comment on that. Okay, a third model is called the devil model. Um, Greg Boyd um, talks a little bit about this when, now what he's talking about here is who's in control of, of the world as we know it. Okay, so this isn't the devil made me do it, Flip Wilson type position. It's the idea that until Jesus came, the ruler of the world was Satan or the devil. In other words, one of the reasons that Jesus came into the world was to drive out the prince of this world. So let me turn over to John chapter 12 for a second. And in this cross-reference, It says here in verse 31, he says, um, Jesus said, um, the, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. So the context is talking about um, his hour coming and he's going to die. And in verse 27, he's talking about this hour. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. So there's this voice from heaven, sort of like at his baptism. And the crowd that was there heard it and said, and said it had thundered. Others said it was an angel uh, had spoken to him. Then here's how Jesus replies to this episode um, of this, this voice. This voice was not for your benefit, was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. So one of the purposes of Jesus was to drive out the prince of this world. And his death was to do that through his death and his resurrection there's a new rule that is ultimately brought in to the way the world works. So I'm in John, I'm gonna to turn to one more passage in chapter 10, verse 10. And here Jesus is talking about um, uh, him being the shepherd of the flock. And he then talks a little bit about um, thieves and robbers. So in verse seven, he says, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to kill and uh, steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it to the full. So what Greg Boyd would say is before the time of the coming of Jesus, the world was in uh, was controlled by the devil, and the death of Jesus breaks that power. Now, he is not a charismatic, and he would not be punching people on the forehead type thing. What he's talking about is the death of Jesus brings about the kingdom of God that then breaks the power of Satan's control on this on the world. So. In other words, the way that you fight the devil is to imitate the ways of Jesus and to believe in the teachings of Jesus. So it's not kind of a exorcism per se. It's 
we push back on the powers of darkness by imitating Christ, loving Christ, learning how to live within the kingdom of God. Does that, does that make sense to you? Okay. So the fourth one is uh, from Peter Wagner. He was a big guy in the 70s and 80s, wrote a lot of books. And his approach on spiritual warfare is interesting because he talks about how certain parts of the world are, some parts of the world are more supernaturally controlled by uh, darkness and Satan than other parts of the world. So you'll notice the first point here, he says, uh, he said he talks about territorial spirits, spiritual mapping, and then an identification repentance. So, what he talks about is that there are certain parts of the world that are especially controlled by powers of darkness. So, have you ever heard somebody say, um, "You could feel evil; you could just sense it." feeling, you know, if you went somewhere or saw something. So when I did a missions trip down to Mexico, we went to uh, one of the pyramids outside Mex Mexico City. And on those pyramids is where there was a lot of human sacrifice. And there really was, I don't know, I couldn't, I cannot put my finger on it. There was a, the, a sense of real darkness i don't know you could just kind of feel it i don't know if it's all in the in my mind because of what took place there but that's what he is talking about that certain parts of the world because of practices of certain peoples and stuff paganism child sacrifice different things like that that satan has a control on that geography and he goes back to daniel chapter 10 to kind of make his point where there is these two spiritual beings, one is called the Prince of Greece, and the other, the Prince of Persia, that's in battle against uh, God's angelic forces. And one of them is the angel Michael that's battling for territorial control. That's kind of where he gets some of this idea that, of spiritual warfare. So, as we come to an end in our study tonight, I don't want you to have to choose. You don't have to choose because I, I already showed you my hand. I think there's elements to each one of these positions that probably has an insight into things and they just draw off of different passages of scripture to make their point. Does that make sense? So different authors will kind of emphasize certain passages over others. And I think maybe the best way to kind of think about it is to go back to James again. Maybe the best way to think about spiritual warfare is the threefold, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So let's go back with here's where we'll finish. In James chapter four. So in verse one, he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you, don't they come from your desires, the battle within you? So John would call that the flesh, okay? In verse four, he says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? There's the world, okay? The influence of the systems of the world. And then lastly, in verse seven, Submit yourself then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. There's the devil. So I personally think probably the best way to look at spiritual warfare is we all battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And, and uh, those three things are overcome with it by depending upon the Lord in humility. That's the last statement, verse 10 of this paragraph. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. So I think that's probably our best way of battling this very complex world that we live in and our own complexities as well. Thoughts, closing thoughts as we finish tonight? Mm -hmm. 
Interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of things that are that's interesting out there. So, you know, it's just my goal is to just because you want to learn. My goal is to show you there's a lot of things, maybe depending upon what your tradition and background is in church that you've never been told. And there's, you know, it's uh, there's things that uh, we can continue to to become familiar with. If we, if we yeah, want it's, inter- it's interesting, you know, I think growing up in a, in a not, you know, Methodist church, which is not, and that wasn't super liberal, but it was, you know, more liberal than our Baptist church, we went to there, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, you heard a lot about angels. You didn't really, I don't, I don't think the ministers dwell too much about Satan. You know, it seemed like it was more about, it was more about uh, the angels and, mm-hmm. That sort of thing. That was that was in, in the story, you know, in the stories and in the messages, they, they seem to steer away from from Satan. Whereas, when, um, in contrast, more fundamental churches, I think, tended to bring that out in part because they're much they were more legalistic, and yeah, and I think that kind of goes a little bit hand in hand with legalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so. so anyways, but I I thought this was a good approach to sing, sing right. Yeah, that's a good paragraph to, to at least uh, bring it to the surface to think about. So, yeah. all right. Well, thanks. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay, we'll close it off now, and I hope you have a good rest of the week. Okay. Take care. Bye, bye, everybody. Bye. Night. Thank you. Bye.